Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this morning I'm going to begin the sermon just a little bit differently than I usually do. I'm going to begin with uh, the theme and points, stating the theme and points. That's because in this sermon we're going to focus, first of all, on the last verse of this text, verse 18. So we'll start by taking some time to understand verse 18, then we'll go back and study the rest of the passage through the lens of that verse. We'll see why as we go along. And verse 18 essentially is the first part of it anyway. It's going to form the theme for the sermon this morning. And the three different sections of the rest of the text will form the three points. So to that end, this is the theme and the points of the sermon. Of his own will, God gave us new birth by the word of truth. We're going to see that by this new birth, we first of all view poverty and prosperity in a new way. Uh, Secondly, we endure trials and fight temptations. And finally, we acknowledge that all good things come from God. So, of his own will, God gave us new birth by the word of truth. And by this new birth, we first of all view poverty and prosperity in in a new way. So, verse 18 of our text reads as follows. Of his own will, he, that is God, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, what do those words mean? What does it mean that God brought us forth? Well, these words refer to what is known as being a born again, or born from above. Your physical mother brought you forth into this world when you were born. Well, God also brought you forth in one sense, that he caused you to be born again, spiritually reborn. To be brought forth by God or born from above means to be regenerated, recreated by God, to be, to be made new people with a new heart, to be given new spiritual life, and to be given a new nature. So that's what God has done for us who believe. And there are a number of wonderful benefits that come from being born again. Being born again or born from above means, first of all, that we are now children of God. Think of it this way. Your physical mother bore you. That makes you her child. Well, when God the Father caused you to be born again, that makes you his child. So we are children of God by God's power. Being born from above by God means we have the beginning of eternal life within us. When God brings us forth by the word of truth, he gives us a new nature in Christ, and part of the quality of that new nature is eternal life. We have that part of that already in Jesus Christ. That is why 1 Peter 1 says that we have been born again by imperishable seed. That is seed that will not and cannot perish. And seed that gives rise to imperishable life. And that's what we have in Christ. Imperishable life already now. And being brought forth by God with a new spiritual life means we can also live new lives. 
right? Someone who is now alive will live accordingly. We can live new lives to the glory of God. Before God worked in us in this way, we were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. But now God has made us alive in Christ so that we might serve the living God. And we can by God's power. Notice that verse 18 states that we were brought forth of God's own will. It wasn't we who decided one day that we would be born again if it was as if it were an act of our will and our strength. No, God decided for us. He gave us new life when we were dead in ourselves. And so God gets all the glory for our new life. He has brought us forth by His will. And so we praise Him for saving us. We could never raise ourselves from the dead. God has done it. And so we thank and praise Him for it. Verse 18 also tells us that God has brought us forth by the word of truth. It's the same thing described in our reading from 1 Peter 1. There it says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The word that was preached to you, says, writes Peter. First Peter 1 explains that this word of God is the good news of Christ. It's most likely the same thing here in James, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. This is the message of the good news of Christ, death and resurrection, and what those events achieved for we who, us who believe. See, Christ, by his death, has brought us from a state of being under the wrath of God to, be, to become uh, brought into a state under the full love of God. And Christ, by his resurrection, has secured our own resurrection and eternal life and has secured for us a new nature. And these are the things we have through Jesus Christ. It's through this gospel of Christ that God works this new life within us. This is how he brings us forth, recreates us. So having understood verse 18... And the new condition God has given us in Christ, we're going to go back to verse 9 and start viewing the things in this passage through the lens of what we just learned in verse 18. When we look at verse 9, 10, and 11, that's the first section of our text, we see that those verses call us to take on a new perspective when it comes to things like poverty and prosperity. Without the new life we have in Christ, how might we, might we view things like riches and poverty? Well, if, if this present life, your lifespan here on earth, if this life is all that you have, then it's so easy to make gaining riches what life is all about. Life becomes all about getting more stuff. And if this life is all you have, 
then the richest life is the best life possible. And that's how many people think. That's how many people operate in, in this world. And from this worldly perspective on life, wealth also becomes the ultimate security for the future. It's how you can secure food and medical care and, and the like for the days to come. So as Proverbs 18 verse 11 puts it, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination, it becomes the source of our security. Well, not only that, but if your perspective on life is one of this life only, you will have, or sorry, you will view having little in life as a curse. Or if not as a curse, then having little is not much of a life at all, or is one to be avoided at all costs. But look at the radically different perspective our text calls us to take on, and that we can take on, given the fact that God has brought us forth by the word of truth. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, a lowly brother here refers to someone who was of a lower class in society at this time. He or she had little status in the world. Undoubtedly, such a person had little money. Also, as we see that James will compare this person to the rich uh, person. And yet the Spirit says through James, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. To that, we might respond, say, what? Why would anyone boast in this? And how is he boasting in his exaltation? He's a lowly brother. But this is how the gospel changes things and changes our perspective. The gospel is like the great leveler between all people. Right? All, all people who believe, the, the rich or the poor. The gospel flips our perspective upside down. Or better to say, it turns it right side up. You see, in the world's eyes, from a this-world-only perspective, this poor believer has pretty much nothing. But seeing things differently with the eyes of faith... We know this poor Christian has great riches. See, understanding the new life God gives us changes how we see things. This lowly poor man is a Christian brother. Christ is his Savior. Christ has redeemed him from eternal damnation. He's been freed from the wrath of God and has been given eternal life by God's grace. And he's now a member of the church of Jesus Christ. What riches! He might have barely any money and few possessions, but that's okay. He is a fellow heir with Christ. And Christ is the heir of the entire world. 
So that means one day this lowly brother will also receive all things in Christ, share in the inheritance of Christ. It's the same perspective the gospel gave the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 as having nothing and yet possessing everything because we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and He is our Lord and Savior. And it's true. We can't discount the hardships that might come through this man's lowly position and his poverty. His poverty might bring him many temporary hardships, and some of, some of us might know that all too well. We might go through that and might be experiencing that right now. doesn't mean we have to discount that. But by persevering through them in faith, the poor and lonely will be richly rewarded by God. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, says our text. The surrounding world would have treated him as a nobody. The pagans around him would have scoffed at him for being a Christian. But even though he is lowly in the eyes of many, he's esteemed and chosen by God. Remember verse 18. Of his own will... God has brought us forth. God has exalted this lowly brother and chose him to salvation. And God often chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And in that, in the wonderful grace and choosing of God, this lowly brother can rejoice and boast. So that's a poor brother in our text, but look now at what our text says to the rich. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now there is some debate as to whether this rich man here is a Christian or an unbeliever. And some things that James says about him suggest he might be referring to a wealthy unbeliever. However, I think it's more, far more likely that he's addressing a rich Christians. And one reason is that these verses parallel nicely with Jeremiah 9, 23-24, where God says to his own people, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. So God says, let not the rich man boast in his riches, that he knows me. And being born again by God's power and by his will means that we will see earthly riches differently. There's no longer a reason to boast in a worldly way. Rather, we see the riches that are true riches and embrace that. 
Again, knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, the gospel, again, it's a great leveler. We are all one in Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's what we can all say as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this perspective means we no longer find security for the future in in wealth. Look at how our text describes a rich man. It's like a flower on the field. It springs up, looks beautiful for a time. It's then scorched by the sun and the heat, and it withers away. So a rich man might flourish for a while. We know it's not going to last He's going to go the way of all the earth. And 1 Peter 1 uses language similar to our text to describe all people, whether rich or poor. Quoting Isaiah 40, describes all people as the flowers of the field. Eventually, they all waste away and they die, they perish. Now, rich people might be able to extend their life expectancy, expectancy, but they can't extend it forever. And as those who have been born again, who have been given new life by God through God's Word, we can see this. We know this, and so we can embrace it. We can embrace the fact that riches, will one day, we'll have to let them go. They will not save us from death. Instead, we put our hope in God for the future our future in this life and for the life to come. The Spirit says through Paul in 1 Timothy 6 to teach us along these lines, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, right? not to boast in their riches, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the rich man can boast in his humiliation, meaning he knows his riches will one day fail him. But that's okay because he has something far greater and far better. He's God who's redeemed him. His riches are no longer the source of his security. God is. And so he boasts in something else. His prosperity can fail him in a moment, but nothing shall separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That brings us to our second point. Now, verse 12 shifts the focus of the text again. It looks back into a theme from earlier on in James 1, the theme of going through trials, something we looked at last week. Verses 2 through 4 emphasized what going through trials produces. By faith produces steadfastness or endurance or perseverance in the Christian life. Now, verse 12 comes back to that theme of trials, but it shows us the end result of persevering through trials, and that is receiving the crown of life. As it says here, 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. See, this encouragement and blessing is given here because going through trials can bring about the danger of falling away. It's in the moments of trial that our faith is, is tested. If faith is not genuine, then the trial might cause someone to walk away from, from God and from Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus taught us some, something of this in the parable of the sower. In that parable, some seed, representing the word of God, fell upon the rocky soil. It sprang up quickly, but because, but because it had no root, it quickly withered away uh, from the elements, the heat and the sun. But Jesus explained it like this. These are the ones who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, one reason trials can affect us this way is because it brings out uh, doubts from our, in, from our hearts. It can raise questions about the goodness of God. That's also why our text says what it does next. Let no one say when he is tempted, <clears throat> I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does indeed send us trials, which tests our faith. But during the trials, temptations might arise in our hearts. Temptations to sin or temptations toward unbelief. Now, our text emphasizes that God is never the source of such temptations. Those arise out of our own hearts. Yet trials that test our faith can bring us to a crux in our relationship to God where we come to that point. Are we going to keep going in the Christian faith? Are we going to keep walking with the Lord? Or are we going to walk away from Him? Remember verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And beloved, let me call you and urge you to continue on in faith in this life despite the difficulties. God is faithful and he is powerful and he can turn all things towards your good. As verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so blessed is that person who keeps walking in faith despite the trouble he or she faces. Blessed is the person who continues to believe God's promises despite the troubles and the trials of life. And so again, let me call you and urge you to to fight against doubts, beloved. To keep going in faith. It is worth it. It is eternally worth it. And you will not be disappointed if you keep trusting the Lord through the troubles of life. 
Instead, your faith will be richly rewarded by God. God calls us in His Word to persevere. It's a responsibility we have. Think of Philippians 2, what it says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the Cans of Dort likewise teaches us that we have a duty to, to persevere. It says, Believers must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptation. And when they do not watch and pray, they not only can be drawn away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into serious and atrocious sins, but with the righteous permission of God are sometimes actually drawn away and, and they embrace yeah, terrible sins like David did or the Apostle Peter when he denied the Lord. So persevering in faith means also fighting against temptation. Listen to the danger uh, described here in our text regarding temptation. It says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we will, certain points, right? Maybe every day. We will, every day, have evil desires arising out of our hearts. And these evil desires, they lure us. Right? Think of a fisherman trying to catch fish. He uses a lure that attracts the fish. The fish comes after the lure, not knowing that he's about to be caught and killed. And evil desires are like that. If they are not fought against and repented of, the end of them is death. And the Holy Spirit says here, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And that is that wrong actions, sinful actions, will follow wrong desires, sinful desires. And so if evil desires are not fought against, put to death, eventually, if we harbor them and entertain them, we will act on them. It says here, sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So acting on evil desires, if not repented of, will become a way of life, entrenched sin. And if entrenched sin is not repented of and fought against, it leads to death, eternal death. So part of persevering in faith means fighting against temptation and, and putting, putting to death sin. So that's also our responsibility. On the other hand, it must be stressed that persevering in faith comes from God who preserves His people in the faith. And so we look to Him to keep us in the faith. Earlier I quoted Philippians 2. It emphasizes not only our responsibility, but also God's sure promise. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So we have encouragement that we will persevere because God will preserve us. And the Cans of Dort emphasizes that again and again. That God will keep 
His people to the end. And that's what gives us the encouragement to keep going in the Christian life. Remember again, verse 18 of our text, of His own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. God decided to give us this new life. So we trust that He will also sustain it to the very end of our lives. The one who began a good work in us will carry it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, and we will be rewarded with the crown of life. And we have this confidence not only because God decided to give us this new birth, but because of the nature of this new life. We were brought forth, born from above, by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1 calls it imperishable seed. That is, human seed gives life or gives rise to perishable life. Humans will eventually die. But imperishable seed from the Word of God gives rise to imperishable life. That's what gives us confidence that we will endure to the end, no matter what may come. That brings us to our last point. Verses 16 and 17 again switches focus. There it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And these words build off of what was said about temptations. When temptations arise during trials, we might want to point the finger at God as if he were the source of temptation. But our text shows us that this is impossible. In order for God to tempt someone, he would have to delight in evil in some way, And he will never do that, and he cannot do that. He is perfectly and completely holy. He is righteous in every way, and he is supremely good. So he can never be tempted by evil and will never tempt anyone to do evil. And God will always be this way. He's faithful to himself, and as verse 17 says, in him there's no variation or shadow due to change. So, he remains the same. He will always remain this way. Instead of tempting us to do evil, the text gives us a contrast. All good things come to us from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good thing you have in life comes down to you from God. God is supremely good, beloved. Satan would have you believe otherwise, but never give in to his lies. God is supremely good. Every good and every perfect gift comes to us from him. This includes our new birth through which we have eternal life. Our sinful hearts give birth to evil desires and and sin, but God gives birth to our new natures. Verse 18 ends by saying, God has given us this new birth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he has created. Well, the whole creation is going to be redeemed by God, made new. At this time, the present world is held in bondage to decay. And because of that, the creation is groaning. It's longing for the children of God to be revealed, says Romans 8. 
That's because when that happens at Christ's coming, then creation will also be renewed. But our recreation now, our rebirth, is the first fruits of that coming reality that God will renew all things. First fruits is a farming term. First to the first part of the crop that comes off the fields. The rest of the harvest will follow later. And by giving us this new birth, this new creation, God is showing. He will make all things new. And when we are there and things are made new, then trials will be no more. Temptations will be no more. Sin and death will be no more. And when that happens, we will experience the goodness of God in full. Amen.